Hello and welcome everyone. I'm Robert Baharian and this is Masters in Investing. They say life never stops teaching and we never stop learning. This show is a constant dialogue with investors about the economy, about markets, business and about investing to provide you with insight, learnings and a straight up point of view so that you can make better decisions with your money. Robert Baharian is the founder and CEO of Baharian Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Robert and the show's guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Baharian Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, its general in nature, and does not take into account your specific circumstances and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial advice or decisions. Clients of Baharian Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this show. My guest today is Danny Peer, Managing Director, Investor Services at Wingate, a highly respected Melbourne-based finance and investment house. We discuss the private real estate debt landscape, what makes a good deal, what Danny learned from one of the biggest mistakes that made media headlines, the power of relationships. We talk about the scarcity of private real estate debt and why this asset class is ignored by so many asset allocators and money managers. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Danny, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Rob. That is quite a mouthful. Uh, Very nice to be with you. $2 trillion, Danny, is the value of the Australian stock market. $1 trillion is the value of the Australian corporate bond market. Superannuation is estimated at $2.7 trillion. Australian private debt, $2.8 trillion. Greater than the ASX, Australian corporate bond market, superannuation. Now, private real estate debt is not a new phenomenon. It is not a new asset class, but maybe to the Australian market, uh, it is. Can you explain to us, Danny, in relatively basic language, what is private real estate debt? Rob, let's take a step back and talk about what private debt is, and then we can just uh, put the real estate part onto it because that'll be a a fairly small and simple step. So in essence, uh, private debt is debt that is provided by non-deposit-taking institutions or approved ADIs, as they're called, approved deposit-taking institutions. It's in essence disintermediating the banking system. The traditional way that a free market uh, capitalist economy works is that savings are mobilized through the banking system. You've got, uh, you defer your consumption through receipt of profits or income. Uh, you deposit it in, the, in, in a bank and people that want to make use of those savings then approach the bank and the bank makes loans to them. That's how the system's operated for hundreds and not a few thousand years. But recently, and, and we can go into this if it's of interest, um, there's been growing disintermediation in the banking system whereby people with cash would go directly to people who seek to borrow, who need that capital. And this basically is the preserve of the non-bank lender, the intermediator in that sense, um, disrupting the bank's business and matching those with capital, capital to invest with those looking for capital. So the outcome of that transaction, that outcome of that relationship 
the private investor working with a non-bank lender to extend a facility to a borrower, that in essence gives rise, gives rise to private debt. That is a private debt instrument. And it's called private really for two reasons. It's private because it's non-banking and it's private because it's not listed on any financial market. And there's actually a little bit of controversy as to what private actually means. You know, is it one or the other? To me, it's, to me, it's both. There's some specific characteristics with regards to private debt. I suppose the first is obvious in that, like I said a, bit, a few seconds ago, it's private, it's contained between the originator and the investor who put up the capital. It's also debt uh, in the sense that uh, if we understand debt correctly, it's a contract that usually contains terms around uh, the term of the debt, interest rates, and of course, very important uh, security. Uh, and that is also tends to be a very important ingredient in the private debt market is the form of security. And that then leads us to the whole concept of private real estate debt that in, in terms of what I've just described now, that's private capital lending to participants, commercial uh, participants in the property market, usually property developers and the security around that or supporting that transaction, supporting that facility would be some form of real estate whether it's uh, completed real estate assets, whether, whether it's land still earmarked for development or whether it's in the middle of the actual construction phase, that would tend to be the security in what we now call private real estate debt. You mentioned a, a couple of pieces of uh, points that when you refer to security, Danny, you talk about vacant land that's earmarked to be developed or completed construction, etc. Within that segment, no doubt there are different ways of lending, different ways of structuring the debt. And each of those would have its own and unique risk reward characteristics. Can you maybe fragment that a little bit for us and maybe talk a little bit about uh, mezzanine debt or secure debt, etc., to give our audience a bit more of an understanding and when we lift that bonnet up? There's, there's a concept in finance called uh, the capital structure, uh, structure or more colloquially, uh, the capital stack. And that, in essence, is the sources of finance for a particular project or for a particular use. And all accountants familiar with the balance sheet will know exactly what I'm talking about. That, in essence, the initial part of financing any endeavor would usually be uh, owner's equity or, or the contribution that the founders make uh, to that particular enterprise. I mean, we're all familiar with equity because, in essence, those are the instruments that get traded on, on the ASX that you just mentioned a few minutes ago. Now, when a business or a development or any commercial endeavor uh, requires funding, typically it's not funded in its entirety with equity. The reason is, is that equity is very, very expensive, whereas debt is uh, somewhat less expensive and can be substantially less expensive depending on the quality of that debt and the quality of the security. So, Typically, when looking to finance something, most entrepreneurs, most business people would look to mix the financing with a mixture of equity and debt. And that would lead to a certain amount of gearing in the structure, which, as I say, is very, very typical in business and is certainly very, very typical in, in, in property. Within the debt part, there are certain segments as well, as you alluded to. There's the senior, there's the mezzanine, and usually there's a third piece uh, that can be referred to as preferred equity or, or uh, uh, junior debt. Just to briefly give a bit of background to each of these, uh, the senior debt is the debt that's really at the most or at the lowest risk part of that capital structure. 
The senior debtor's got first claim to the assets, the security that that loan is attached to. And more so, the senior debt will have or be defined by a certain loan to value ratio as well. So let's drill a little bit further in because that all goes down to the whole concept of risk and how debt is structured. So if we have a look at the capital stack, as I say, there's three, typically three levels of debt. The first being senior, the next being what we call mezzanine or second mortgage, and the third being the junior piece or the preferred equity. Those are the broad categories. The key number to look at really though is what part of the, or what quantum of that structure do they actually occupy? And here's where people can, or investors can trip up a little bit because sometimes investors fall in love simply with the concept of senior debt. I invest in senior debt, that means it's safe, it's secure, I'm comfortable with it. And that can be true, but it might not be true uh, as well because it all depends really what the loan to value ratio is that accompany each of those level, levels of debt. So if we have a look at a full value of an asset saying $100, if I run those three debt levels and I've got equity, the capital structure could look as follows. I could have $20 of that asset being funded by the owners, the founders, the next level funded by junior debt, say $70 to $80, the next level $50 to $70 being mezzanine, and the senior level being zero to $50. So I know I've thrown a lot of numbers over here, let's unpack them slightly because this is such a key way of understanding debt, its risk, and um, what kind of uh, returns we should expect from it as well. In the numbers that I've thrown out, the most safest part of that capital structure would be that senior piece, zero to $50, assuming that the value of the security there is, uh, is, is $100. What does this mean to the investor? What does this mean to the safety of that part of the debt structure? It means the value of the asset, if things go wrong and that asset has to be sold, that asset can lose 50% of its value and the senior debt holder still get all their money back. And that's the attractiveness of a senior, but that's also the importance of the loan to value ratio. Because let me throw another example at you. Say we've got a senior debt situation where again, some example, the asset's worth $100. There's no junior debt, there's no mezzanine debt. There's only $10 of equity. Senior debt now is $90 which by the way is uh, used to be fairly typical of a vanilla mortgage arrangement put together by a typical retail bank, that might be senior debt. But if you think about it, if that asset in my example declines by or reduces in value by $20 or 20% rather, the senior debt can be impaired. So there's two key things to understand with debt and that capital structure. Who's got first claim on the asset and what the degree of uh, leverage or what the loan to value ratio is. And both those uh, aspects are key to an uh, investor's uh, awareness and their due diligence when it comes to understanding what risks they face when investing in the debt. Your description of the asset class and your description of that process when it comes to loan to value ratios and security, etc. it's no different to what the major banks are doing, but they're playing in a different space. They're do, structuring them slightly differently. I'm sure you would also remember 100% LVR and in, in the US, 105% LVR. So people are paying you to borrow the money. That's right. Um, we've come a long way since there. Danny, the recent changes in bank, bank regulation has seen a new cohort enter this market whereby 
banks are being almost dictated to by regulators to how they can structure their lending, who they can lend to, et cetera. Can you explain to us what that is and what it actually means for the banks? And I want to follow up then with the space that you play in and what that means for people like you and people like Wingate. So let's, let's be specific in the uh, Australian context then, Rob, because it's somewhat different in, in, in different countries. But the way the banking system has evolved in Australia is to choose to make more and more loans into the property sector. You could probably guess from my accent, I'm not a born and bred Australian, but I've been here for a couple of decades and I'm still getting used to the Australian love affair with property. And I can understand, I can understand the reason behind that love affair. It's been a particularly well-performing asset class really since the early 1990s. So in my 20 years in Australia, I've watched the, the muscularity and the appeal and the returns of the property market um, with interest, um, as have the banks. Um, it's very easy to lend typically uh, to property, particularly finished property. And that's why banks have been so aggressive and so motivated to increase the mortgage book as, as uh, quickly as they can and as competitively as they can. The problem is twofold. The problem is, is that this has led to an overweight position in the property sector, which APRA, which is the banks regulated in Australia, considered a systemic risk a few years ago. And uh, I think nothing could be uh, closer to the truth. Absolutely. You know, Australia, Rob, hasn't had a, it's probably the only major G20 country or, you know, mature Western economy not to experience a significant property crash in the last, well, if you want to include Japan, 30 years, but certainly um, in the GFC. So if we just take a brief, uh, digress briefly when it comes to the safety and the volatility of property, we've grown up with a certain expectation and certainly the last generation. And as I say, in the last 30 years, we've had a certain experience with property that's defined our belief and understanding of property, which is a really safe, secure asset, nice, smooth increase in value and the go-to investment class with many, many people. If you look back at bigger, more muscular, more advanced countries in Australia, Japan in the late 1980s, early 1990s, and certainly uh, the United States and the global financial crisis and much of Europe and the UK as well, they all experienced brutal property crashes. Japan's property market hasn't even overtaken where it was 30 years ago. Neither has its stock market, by the way. And the United States as well and, and uh, the UK, there's, there's still big parts of their property market that haven't gone past their 2008, uh, 2008, 2009 highs. So... We and APRA, I believe, was quite right to have a look at the bank exposure to property and say, look, if we ever had to have any kind of uh, similar experience to other modern, sophisticated, powerful economies, we'd be in deep, deep, deep trouble. Really big trouble, because if you have a look at the size of the big four banks and the importance to the Australian economy, if we had to have a serious property retracement, that would be disastrous uh, in, in many, many ways. So APRA started getting somewhat aggressive with the banking system a couple of years ago by limiting and dissuading the growth of their property book. And this has led to a funding gap, which was there, but it's become exacerbated in the last few years, whereby the banks are simply not allowed. They're precluded due to certain lending limits from lending to property uh, linked assets where, where property is a security. And this has given rise now to a 
much bigger non-bank uh, property lending area, uh, the non-banking sector as it were. And just to put some numbers around that, what we call the commercial real estate uh, loan sector is probably sitting at about $350 billion at the moment. Banks, it's a bit difficult to get very firm figures, but the banks probably still contribute about 75% uh, of that funding, which is down from 85% two or three or four years ago. So it's a substantial decrease, you know, 10% of 350 billion or perhaps slightly lower, the number has grown, is, is a big number. And the number that APRA would like the banks to move down to is around about 65%, which tends to be the long-term average. So there's still another 10% of deleveraging to go, which is, you know, 35, $40 billion, which means there's a lot more growth and a lot more funding to be provided in that non-bank space, which is uh, why me, Wingate, our competitors are very comfortable about the space we're in because there's a lot of work still to be done. And frankly, Rob, I think it's very, very healthy because that, that kind of concentration that the banks had is, is, is not good. It's, it's not good for the system. And to d diversify it amongst many more players, I just think it's a much more healthy thing from the economy itself. But the move into the non-bank lender and that shift from 85% all the way down to aiming at about 65% is not only APRA-inspired and systemic you know, inspired from the system, but it's also a result of the banks becoming less commercial about how they operate in the space, uh, bluntly. So, How so, uh, Danny? Well, the, the, bank, the banks are big beasts and, and they're tooled for scale. So the banks would like to lend big numbers and they would like to lend as vanilla as possible or if the number is sufficiently big they might invest uh, uh, some time in, in creating a bespoke flexible loan for that particular borrower but below a certain amount it just doesn't suit them and that that's a great opportunity for the non-bank lenders and it's a great opportunity for the investors uh, working with the non-bank lenders because the Lending into property, particularly construction, I'm not talking about a complete real estate, but particularly land banking and construction requires some configuration to suit the borrower. You know, when you lend it, when you, when you ask for a mortgage, it's vanilla. And that's why the banks love mortgages. They do a loan on the house, they estimate what the LVR is going to be, 80%, whatever the going rate is today, boom, that's it. And it's, it's a cookie cutter. It's a, big, it's a big scalable machine, which is what the banks are looking for. Banks are not looking for the complexity of individual conversations with each borrower and the customization of loans, again, unless it's a certain amount. So this, again, has opened up the sector to the non-bank lender by partnering with borrowers and almost acting as business partners. Financiers, yes, but also as business partners to say, how can we work with you to produce the best outcome for both of us. And this has got two big positives. The first positive, obviously, is that if the funding can be structured in an optimum way for each project, then the net value added is op optimized. But also because there is a very much a commercial wrapping around this, the returns that can be asked are substantially higher than, than what would typically be available from the market. Why? Because you are partnering the borrower. There's almost like a partnership quasi-equity upside that's wrapped within the debt because you are adding much more value than simply being a commoditized lender. What and you're describing, Danny, to me sounds like what the banking system used to be decades mm -hmm. and decades ago. 
And when you get to a position where you're so big and become so clunky, it makes it really difficult to have that true relationship and have a customizable offering for each and every one of your customers or your clients. You talk about systematic risk earlier, whereby the regulators, in this case, APRA, is trying to de-risk the banking book. If the music keeps playing, Danny, people are going to keep dancing. So if it's not the banks that are going to lend the money, no doubt the market will come to the market and provide money if people want to continue borrowing. So just to understand, was APRA's decision to slow down lending or to slow down lending of that of the big banks? Mainly the big banks, because they want to, there's, I don't think there's any intention of APRA to interfere in the financing of property development in Australia. That they would leave to the markets. And although I think the property market, uh, if I want to go slightly controversial over here, Rob, I think the property market is skewed and holds unwarranted appeal due to the fiscal policy that I think interfere with the pricing mechanism to an extent. And that's the whole concept of negative gearing and the attractiveness of property. I think, I think that's an issue that, that does need to be addressed because whenever you make something too attractive, the music will go on for too long and play too loud. Um, so that, that's not really an APRA issue. That's more a, a fiscal policy and hopefully uh, Josh Frydenberg and Matthias Corman are alert to that because whenever you make too great the fiscal incentives to direct capital in a particular direction, you'll get malinvestment, overinvestment and a fragile system over there. So that's not an APRA issue. But I do feel that you've got a very good point over there that are there too many incentives whereby there's an overallocation of resources to one particular sector with the potential that you are going to get overvalued securities, too much investment, and then a day of reckoning at some stage where the money doesn't flow in, in that direction and or interest rates, the pricing of that money increases. So that is a good point. And Rob, frankly, I think uh, this is one of the challenges to every lender into the property market, both the banks and the non-bank lenders. And that is to understand what the quality of the property and what the quality of the asset is. You know, I, I've typically been a equity market, I won't use the word specialist, that's a bit too grandiose, but uh, my experience and background is equity um, listed and, and, and uh, private equity. Joining Wingate just over five years ago was more my baptism when it comes to uh, understanding property. But one of the, few, the first lessons I learned when it came to understanding property is that property is very much a heterogeneous asset. By that, I mean you can get brilliant property and you can get shocking property. It's not a BHP share. Are we going BHP or are we going RIA or are we going Fortescue? You know, what is our view on the iron price and how do we exploit that or bring that to our investors' attention? Property is much, much more difficult, requires much more expertise. It requires much greater relationships and it requires much greater analysis because it's amazing you can have a development on one side of the road and a development on the other side of the road. One sells like hot chips and the other stands empty for a couple of years. I'm still on my learning curve over here, but I can I, I appreciate the complexity associated with the property. And there's no doubt. Peter Costello recently said uh, at a, a forum that we held a couple of days ago for our investors that when it comes to a era of cheap money, everything looks good, but it's when the, that wave withdraws they just start understanding where the malinvestment and the, and the poor assets actually lie. So and let's I've talk got... about that, Danny. You talk about 
attractive interest rates. You talk about higher rates of return that one can demand because of the things that you've just explained a couple of minutes ago. To quote you, Danny, I think, you said, lending money is easy. Trying to get it back when things don't go to plan is the truest test. Yes. When you go to work, when you go to the office, um, well, not literally today, but when you go to work, what due diligence does Danny Peer and Danny Peer's colleagues undertake to identify a good deal and potentially what could be a shocking deal? So Rob, my part of the business, my responsibilities on the uh, engagement with uh, investors and making sure that our facilities are fully funded and, and that uh, we continue to look after uh, each and every one of our investors. The other, other half of my business is the uh, originating of debt, the engaging with borrowers and making extremely sure that the facilities that we originate are good and um, will get the interest and get the capital back. So as you alluded to, there's a huge amount of research that's required with property. I think uh, even more so than the other asset classes that I'm more familiar with because of the nuances of, of property assets, that, 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 that extraordinary factor X that some property has and some property hasn't. So look, the, our, our property team speaking specifically for Wingate, but I'd imagine it's pretty similar with uh, many of our non-bank competitors and indeed with the formal, formal lending system as well, is that each credible lender has got a substantial due diligence team. And just to run you through the process, it'll probably give your uh, clients and, and uh, you know, people watching this uh, webinar uh, a, a sense of the amount of work that's actually required in order to bring a private debt opportunity uh, to investors. It, it all starts networking with the borrowers because there are thousands and thousands of property developers in Australia. And again, there's some shocking property developers and there's some superb property developers. And it, it's not that apparent without a substantial amount of work, who's who. And when it comes to the risk associated with a private debt transaction, I'd say the counterparty, the person that you're lending to is absolutely primary to understand them. So it starts with an analysis of really who the borrower is and that finding the right people takes networks and it takes time. And that's why it's very difficult for external competitors to enter into this market. It's a competitive market, but it's not an easy market to access. There's been quite a few offshore banks, for example, looking to access the Australian private debt market, but they just haven't got the network. They haven't got the nuanced understanding of our particular market. And therefore they tend to come and go because it's just much more difficult. You've got to find the right people, high quality borrowers. That's the first step. But it's not just about the borrower, it's about the project as well. So what do we look for from a 35,000 feet perspective when it comes to what constitutes a good project to lend to? Well, the developer itself must be a good developer, but much more than that, the, we'd look for certain qualities in the project. And why is, why is that so important? Because in essence, if the counterparty fails, it's going to be the quality of the project, the underlying asset that's going to get us out of trouble. And that's why it's so important to have a look at both and not, not just to rely on one or the other. So when it comes to having a look at a project, we have a look at things like design. We don't like cookie cutter properties that are generic, that frankly can be repriced. You know, the, the, the sale on level 54 dictates the price of level 28 because it's, it's the same look, same size, same everything. So we look for design. We look for utility. Why, why is it a good place for someone to live? Why would someone like living over there? So it's a design aspect and a utility aspect. We have a look at the area. 
Is it, are there attractive schools and, and this project sits in a school zone? Is it near transport hubs? Is it near places uh, of uh, employment? Is there amenities like parks, other facilities around there? Why would someone want to live in that property? And when I talk about heterogeneous property, this is what differentiates bad property from good property. We have a look at the quality of the builder. We've been funding property developments now for about 16, 17 years. And the one thing we've learned is if the builder fails, you're in big trouble because a half-developed project is actually worth nothing. It could be worth less than nothing because you've got a lot of cost to pay for, but nothing to sell. So we would have a look at the quality of the builder, the experience of the builder, the financial muscle of the builder. Now that all takes experienced people and a great degree of analysis. So our team, and again, this would be, I'd imagine, typical with the leading non-bank lenders. We've got ex-property developers. We've got ex-property analysts, researchers. When I say ex, people that we poached from the industry or people that we poached from the banks uh, whose, whose style and, and expertise we like. And we've developed a team of about 20, 25 property experts now who can look at property and say, right, that's worth backing and that's not worth backing. More so, we have a look at the demographics in the area that the property is being developed in. Is this an area where people are moving into or is this an area that people are moving out of? And who's actually moving in and who's moving out? Again, that gives us a great idea as to what the sales range and pricing of that property is going to be when the project becomes available for sale because sometimes it's a 12 to 18 to 24 month lag so you know we know what the current prices are but we need to make some uh, educated assessment as to what they'd be able to be uh, sold for because don't forget that's another risk that we need to look at lending money like you said is easy getting it back is not so easy the way we get it back is when the developer sells the property so how sellable is this property at the price that we are looking at, which then allows us to estimate the value of that security. And I've just given you half a dozen different uh, variables over there, Rob, but there's more. And each one of those uh, variables requires a great degree of study and analysis in order to form an opinion to say, right, that's worth backing. It sounds like we could probably spend an entire show on understanding the due diligence process but it sounds to me as though there's a bit of a domino effect that if first safety net fails, what's the next second safety net and so forth. You, you talk about poaching people that you like the way they think, et cetera. Do you think you may fall into the trap of creating a team that, that just believes they're each other's bullshit, so to speak? Mm. How do you find people and get people into that room to say, I don't think this is a good idea for these reasons. How do you spark debate? How do you spark challenge of different points of view within your team? That, look, that's a great question because drinking the Kool-Aid, I think, is the most dangerous drink of all for anyone who's got stewardship of somebody else's money because uh, believing on bullshit, as, as you say, is the most dangerous thing. And you spoke about a saying, when the, when the music's going, you have to keep on dancing. And that, of course, is a quote from the ex-head of uh, Merrill Lynch, uh, Charles or Chuck, I forget the chap's surname, but he had the tiller of Merrill Lynch going into GFC and uh, he just didn't see it coming. And of course, Merrill Lynch, a uh, hundred year plus name on Wall Street would have been blown up if Bank of America hadn't bailed him out. So yes, independent thinking and maintaining an independent mindset is absolutely critical. So look, I think the two main factors that would contribute to robust debate, certainly my, in my organization, is firstly a culture, an argumentative culture. 
uh, I mentioned the analysis of the property, but the next part in the process is the, uh, the credit analysis. And we've got a very argumentative inquiring credit committee whereby the property guys would come to the credit people and say, this is what we want to lend and why. And with the credit mindset, we'd have a look at it from a purely risk reward basis, not from a believing property spruiking or where things are going or too big to fail, that kind of stuff. So I think culture is critical that people feel free to disagree and people feel free to argue. We also have got several very well recognized and credible independent people that sit in our committees that have got the reputation to lose. So they're not there to try and support our thinking. They are there to try and test our thinking. And they're keenly aware that if a mistake comes through, it's a black mark on their personal brand and their reputation as well. So they're not in it to assist us getting it over the line. They're in it to block us getting over the line wherever they can and make sure that we've got all our ducks in a row. I think the third thing as well when it comes to not drinking our own Kool-Aid, uh, Rob, is that I and all my senior colleagues have got a material amount, amount of our personal wealth in each and every transaction we originate. So uh, I often say to very cynical investors and people looking to invest with Wingate, look, I can tell you how this operation works and I can give you our, our uh, performances and so forth. And you can say, look, history is no uh, guide to the future and, and, and what have you, all those good disclaimers. But I'll say when, when I get the real thick-skinned, cynical person in front of me, I say, look, one thing I can guarantee you is that personal interest rides supreme over here. So when I put a chunk of my money, my family money into a transaction, I want to make bloody sure that this thing has got every chance of working out. And again, that's stops us drinking Kool-Aid. And uh, I think those three elements combined allow us to make very objective and high quality decisions. I think the concept of co-investment is one that's really underrated. I think it's one that is seldom practiced, certainly in our industry, in the wealth management and advisory industry. And I want to I wanna get to that in a minute. I, I want to finish this topic off, Danny, before we change gears. Uh, we talk about risks. We talk about your processes. It's fair to say you've gone through your fair share of mistakes. I'm sure lots of folk in your industry have. You've gone through one, and I'm not going to go in today about the details of it all, but you've certainly gone through one that has been very public. You have been scrutinized for it. What did, what, and how do you learn from experiences like that? Because it is when it, it all hits the fan that the truest test of a capital allocator really comes out. Can you talk us through your experiences and, and learnings from, from that most recent experience? So, look, I, I think it's very important for every investor when it comes to investing in any form of debt to understand that, that uh, there are going to be uh, insolvencies and failures and, and workouts that's required. And, and that's a really good point. I think too many people think that you can put your money somewhere and you can get 10% without any risk. I think Correct. that is the foolish lens to look through, first of all. So I, I, I caveat my comments, Danny, with, with that. And I totally agree with you that this and any other form of investing comes with its risks. 100%, uh, Rob. And look, I'd like to drill down a bit further on what I'm going to say now, but I want to come back to, to your original question is that what I believe, not only Wingate, but uh, many of our competitors as well, offer investors is an exceptional return for the risk that 
we are taking. And, and I'd like to drill down a few minutes about that, but I want to go back and address the question. So, so look, I don't want to be um, shy about this, is, is we had a, a significant counterparty going to voluntary administration last year. And what's interesting about that, and, and what's interesting about the time that we're in at the moment, is the degree of property asset inflation that we saw over the last 20, 30 years, I think has hidden um, the risks of investing in, in uh, this form of debt, but it's also rescued a lot of not such strong operators from the consequences of their decision. Let me unpack that a little bit. What I mean is that if I lend and the security is $100 one year, but after two years, it's $130, which was not uncommon over the last 10 years, I could have really screwed up in my credit assessment and I could have put a, a very poor deal together. But nonetheless, due to the inflation of the security, I was safe. Because whatever happened to the actual original thesis, what I could do is simply sell the security and repay me, my investors back, both capital interest, no problem. The chief economist of ANZ, Richard Jensenga, explained it to me quite nicely a few months ago. He said that the cycle has been rescuing a lot of businesses. And uh, it has. But I think the cycle now has changed, and I suspect now for several years, we're going to be operating in a flat to somewhat uh, headwind type environment that the better operators will shine and the pretenders and the weaker hands are going to fold. And uh, this workout that we've got now with this counterparty, the Rayland Group, I believe, uh, and I, I actually said so at our recent forum, is bringing out the best in Wingate in the sense of what's the question, if the original thesis doesn't work, if the borrower that you've extended finance to goes into administration and is unable to pay in the ordinary course of business, what are you going to do? What resources, what experience are you going to bring to bear? And we now are in the, in the process now of having secured the security because each transaction that we've made uh, is secured. And now we've got sufficient capability uh, and capacity and knowledge to realize those assets in the ordinary course of business. And we're still doing this, by the way. It's not an immediate resolution. But just one example over there is, is uh, one of the major assets that we had, uh, securities that we had, was a development project in Sydney that at the time that this uh, counterparty went into administration was only 50% complete. Now, I believe in many circumstances, the financier would be unable to complete that project. That project would have been sold as, at an absolute fire sale price, and there would have been severe impairment in those transactions, and investors would have lost all or most of their money. Uh, what we were able to do is take over the project, because we've got experienced project managers uh, as, part of our, uh, as part of my colleagues. We were able to refinance the project because the uh, senior financier, St. George, was unwilling to com uh, complete the project. We were able to find a senior financier and we were able to complete the project. So what we've got now is we haven't got a half-finished development site as security. We've got a completed, well-built, desirable complex now close to the CBD of Sydney to sell. And now our challenge now is to sell those uh, units at a good price and then recover our capital interest on that basis. So it's not, uh, people mustn't think that this, uh, that this uh, business is about sitting outside uh, in Collins Street with a checkbook, having people line up and write a check. Things can go wrong. Th things do go wrong. Uh, but the challenge is then to remediate the situation and to extract investors, um, you know, in, in the best possible way. And 
let me say, um, just as a concluding comment to this part, that that's where the whole loan to value ratio piece is so important. If there is an impairment to the asset and the asset loses a certain amount of its value for whatever circumstances, but you're able to realize that asset at a price that um, is uh, below that uh, loan to value, uh, sorry, above that loan to value ratio, you are going to extract yourselves and your investors intact. And that's the beauty about debt. That's the beauty about all forms of debt, but certainly private debt is that our investors and the investors in private debt don't take the first loss. We are insulated from that first loss. The people that get wiped out are the equity holders. Obviously, they've got greater upside. There's more leverage over there, but that's the attractive uh, quality of, of, of debt. Somebody's taking that first loss when things go wrong. There's a few things you've touched on, which we probably won't have time to cover off on today, Danny, and I, uh, I think we can address it at a later point. When we look at non-bank lending globally, Europe is something like 35%. I think the US is over 50% and globally, the average is around 43%. In Australia at the moment, it sits at about 10%, non the share of non-bank lending to the market. When we also think about asset allocators, investment advisors, first of all, we're already starting with a low uh, allocation to this particular asset class. And when you talk to investment advisors, asset allocators, and, and so forth, really quickly, do they pick out ch they, and cherry pick examples of when things go wrong and how things go wrong. And, and really, you hear the success stories of this particular asset class and how one can use this asset class as a portfolio diversifier, especially as global central banks get more and more entangled into the financial system and we have sharp wild swings bursts up and down in asset prices so most recently we went through covid and we saw up days of eight down nine up six down 12 and more and more investors i think are looking for uh, solutions to help diversify portfolios when we look at investor portfolios in australia they are, I think, 65 or 70% of their portfolios are heavily weighted towards stocks, and there's not much else in there that, to diversify portfolios. My question is, why do you think investment allocators and money managers don't look at this asset class as, maybe, as much as they maybe should for the benefit of their investors? Gee, Rob, that's another. That's a now a great question that requires an hour to answer. But let me let me uh, narrow down a few key points to to answer your question. The the, the first is um, asset allocation has always stunned me in in the general advisor area. I've worked with financial advisors uh, for fifteen years in Australia, and the traditional asset allocations used to worry me, but worry me terribly now with the overweight allocation to equities, particularly in the with older investors or investors that are more susceptible, more vulnerable to losing capital and, 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 and find the volatility associated with equities much more uncomfortable than people who can tolerate volatility or have got longer time to let the volatility ride out. I know it's not a direct comparison when it comes to, or not, not 
directly appropriate to the majority of uh, portfolios. But I'm always interested in having a look at the asset allocation of the future fund, who I regard as one of the finance, finest uh, managed funds in Australia. You'll find the allocation to Australian equities in the future fund around about 7%. That's not a printing error, that's 7%. And uh, global equities probably 15 to 20%. So they, they've got about a 25% exposure to equities. And again, not not uh, stepping into the controversies associated with property uh, with uh, equity investments and so forth. But uh, I think one thing that people can agree on to a large extent, and you absolutely alluded to it, Rob, is that the amount of interference from the authorities in the financial markets and the absence of price discovery that this interference has created, uh, I think is deeply concerning to myself and should be deeply concerning to anybody responsible, uh, responsible to uh, or for asset allocation. We just don't know what the correct value of equities are. In fact, we don't know what the correct uh, pricing of interest is either, uh, because of the degree of interference and manipulation involvement, call it what you will, of the central authorities who seem to have adopted a new mandate and that is to su support financial markets, which is bizarre because the mandate for almost every central bank has been to dampen inflation and to maximize employment. That, that's in their constitutions. No one told them to uh, keep a floor or the Fed put, as it's now called, uh, in, in equity and financial markets. So what we've got to equity, equity markets, we've got a confusion around pricing, but they're probably in the main somewhat overvalued to produce the kind of returns that we've, we've expected and received historically. Um, I think the fixed interest market is even more obscene. No one has yet been able to explain to me how a fixed interest instrument can be priced with a negative yield, unless, of course, you are expecting absolute Armageddon, that you'd rather get 98 or 90, 99 cents back in the dollar in 10 years' time, uh, rather than uh, 50 or 60 cents in the dollar. So what the bond market is seeing ahead uh, really concerns me. Well, that's why investors uh, are buying gold, right? If I'm going to put my, put my money into something that's safe and forego money for the benefit and pleasure of doing so, I might as well buy gold and speculate in the price. And we, see, we saw how that unfolded in 2020. Correct. And, and, and gold's interesting because gold is a bet against the central markets being an asset of, of several thousand years that's outside the system. And again, that could be an interesting conversation we could line up at some stage in the future. But let me jump to your question, uh, Rob, because it is so pertinent, is where is the allocation in general portfolios uh, for private debt? And I'd say there's, there's three issues, again, with, with, uh, to answer this question, Rob. The first issue is the availability of private debt opportunities. Uh, if you have a look at the Australian private debt market, as it were, non-bank lending debt, uh, particularly in the property space, it's probably in the region now of uh, 45 to $50 billion in the entire uh, market. And you contrast that with, I don't know what number you gave for the equity market, but it was uh, one or $2 trillion. So, so it's a very scarce asset. And, and that becomes a problem for the general investor because it's just not available to be invested in. It's not, a, it's not like it's a market that you can just bid up at BHP and buy another share. It's just not available. And we, to, to, just as a specific example, with regards to accessing our fund at, at Wingate, the Wingate Investment Partners Trust, we've had instances in the past where we've had a waiting list to get into the fund of five to six months. Um, and that's not a marketing gimmick. That's just we haven't had opportunities to accept new funds into the fund because we just can't deploy them. So that's issue number one, the scarcity. 
Now that that will resolve itself slowly as the non-bank market takes more share. As I said, there's as the banks come down to 65% and as the non-bank space occupies more of that space, there will be more available, but it'll still be very, very limited because even if you go from 50 billion to 70 billion, it's still a scarce asset. That's issue number one. Issue number two is, I, I think, is one of uh, information and understanding. You know, it's been a while since I studied uh, for my DFP and um, you know, went through the, uh, the technical um, studies that financial advisors, financial planners, and other advisors do. But I don't remember any studies of uh, private debt and private assets, or it, maybe it was one or two paragraphs. So I think there's a bit of an information gap as well with regards to informing people as to what exactly secured private debt as an asset class is, how it behaves, uh, how it fits in a portfolio, what it can contribute to portfolio and so forth. So I think it's only people like yourself who are thinking ahead, having a look at the landscape and considering asset classes that aren't mainstream uh, to include in your client portfolios and, and, and thereby educating yourself. And I know you have been for a while, because you and I have been speaking about it for several years in understanding what, what constitutes a good investment in secured private debt and what is not a good investment. Because again, it's a heterogeneous asset class, unlisted, and therefore needs a lot more expertise and understanding to understand what's a good investment and what's a poor investment. So I think there's an information gap as well with the stewards of investors' money and, and portfolio allocators. And I'd say there's a third problem as well where that, that makes this investment class so rare in people's portfolios and that's the industrialization if I call it of the administration. Um, a lot of financial advisors prefer only to do business where the underlying assets can be easily attached to an administrative platform and therefore the portfolios can be easily consolidated and reported upon. It's not that easy with uh, secured private debt or a real estate debt same thing because sometimes it's packaged in ways that don't quite plug into the platforms. And uh, certainly we have got issues with the, the few platform, platform providers that we do do business with that they don't quite understand us because we're not vanilla. It's not simple. It's not plug and play. It's not generic. It's, it's, it's different. And I, I, I do thank and I do respect those financial advisors who put the extra effort in to allocating their client portfolios into this asset class because typically there's more administrative work on their side in order to bring this particular investment to their, their clients. And um, I appreciate the work and I think obviously it's in the client's interest, but it does add complexity to their business model. I always wonder why that decision is being made, whether it's in the benefit of the asset allocator or the benefit for the client. And, you know, I guess you and I can debate that another time. I'd like to think that with the asset class growing, if we look at our global peers and our global counterparts, the trajectory that they've seen over the last two or three decades, I mean, pri private lending has been going on for decades and you know, maybe half a century, if not more. And what used to be reserved for the ultra wealthy is now becoming more and more available for retail investors, let's say in Australia, but a lot certainly does have to change in order for this particular asset class to become more easily readable and easily available for investors to consider as part of a, a, a diversified portfolio. A couple of final questions, Danny, before we, before we wrap up, you talk about interest rates and you talk about negative yields and, and so forth. What do you think 
I'm not uh, predicting rates rising anytime soon. And eventually when they do, what impact would that have on the game that you play and the asset class that you manage? Do you see that as a, as a negative? Is it a positive? How do you see that impacting your asset class? Well, the, the uh, two parts to that uh, question, Rob. The first is uh, interest rates in general. I think we've um, saturated the system to such an extent with debt on a global basis that interest rates, even if they wanted to rise, would be artificially suppressed. They call it uh, financial repression and other uh, terminology out there um, for a considerable period because the system itself just cannot tolerate high interest rates. And by that, I mean, if you originate interest against an asset whose cash flows aren't equipped to repay the, the principal and interest of the debt that gave, gave it life, then that interest will always be baggage and always be sitting over there. And if we have a look at the amount of poor and malinvestments that have taken place on a global basis, we just cannot, we, uh, the system cannot allow interest rates to move up that, that much higher. It doesn't mean that the system can suppress them uh, on an ongoing basis. I believe that the system's bigger than the central banks, but the central banks have given it a right royal go for quite a few years now to keep interest rates low. And I suspect that uh, unless they lose control of the narrative uh, and people stop believing what they're saying and, and comments that don't fight the Fed start losing their, their, their currency and the impact, we'll see an extended period of low interest rates. But if interest rates do rise, um, it'll be very constructive for organizations like, uh, like Wingate and uh, other good organizations in the space of originating interest. It'll be good for a few reasons. It'll be good because we'll now be able to, to understand what are good investments and what are bad investments because interest rates rising will start killing zombie businesses and, and bad investments. So the kind of zombie business that low interest rates has given rise to will be a, a lot more clearer. We did some of our best work in the GFC when interest rates were sky high in Australia uh, because we will move with the, uh, with the interest rate base. So interest rates move from 0.25 to 5.25. Our margin, our commercial ability to take from the base to our negotiated rate will move along with that. So in the GFC, we were bringing opportunities to our investors in the late teens, early 20s, not because they were risky, but because there's a shortage of capital and because interest rates are much higher. We're still able to provide uh, what we believe to be uh, at a conservative risk, returns in the high single digits, seven and a half, eight, eight and a half percent. The reason is because of the, the negotiating strength of the organization with the borrower and the effort we put into customizing the debt itself and the quality of the counterparty and the way that you work together. I believe that our, our product, what you do is of value to to the borrower and they're able to deliver or create a lot more value for themselves and therefore the pricing is not they're not that sensitive to the pricing because we're a business partner we're not just a lender those circumstances will prevail in periods of higher interest rates but it'll only prevail with the better operators because um, interest rates are a hurdle and poorer weaker operators will trip over that hurdle so i'll welcome a period of higher interest rates because it'll simply mean that better operators flourish that more allocation of scarce resources goes to the better end of town not just property developers by the way but all businesses and that'll bring us a stronger economy but there's going to be some serious pain while a lot of debt falls over because there's a lot of bad debt out there and low interest rates 
don't equip us to identify what's the poor debt and what's the good debt. I'd like to think that um, interest rates rising is due to stronger economic, underlying economic conditions and, and fundamental conditions. So on that basis, I, I, I think I agree with you. One final question, Danny, I, I'd like to ask my guests, and you can't answer this with investing in private real estate debt, is what is the biggest regret you think investors will have three years from today? The biggest regret, uh, there the, the, the could be two regrets. Uh, the, the first regret is playing it too safe, uh, uh, strangely enough, because I uh, am very uncomfortable about uh, asset pricing at the moment, but when people tell me that they overweight cash, it's never proved to, proven to be a good situation in the medium long term. So make no mistake, if the system starts becoming wobbly, the authorities will do their damnedest to introduce inflation into the system and cash is going to be a big loser. So to be too cautious is dangerous and that could lead to regrets. But I think also to play yesterday's game at the moment in being very overweight uh, equities and, and classes that have traditionally performed in the past is probably not the best way to look at the future. And I see the future as being an intellectual pursuit to try and identify where genuine value is going to be created in the future and that the, the uplift of uh, ever-increasing markets, which is really about not quality earnings, but about expanding price earnings ratios, that game's really played out. The heavy lifting in passive investing is behind us. It's very important now to find smart people to ally yourselves to, to partner with because there are great opportunities out there, but they're a lot more difficult to find. Danny, I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you for your time today and joining me on this show. Thanks again, Danny Pierre. Rob, great pleasure. Thanks so much. It's, it's been a pleasure chatting with you today. All the best.